So what we want to do is we want to look at the basics over these um, next few weeks of who we are and what sits behind all the specific stuff we talk about. Because the specific stuff we talk about is only ever a symptom of the real underlying foundational thing, if you see what I mean. There's always a thing behind the thing. It's never this, it's that. And the that's are what we're going to be talking about in the next five weeks. And I'm going to talk for 20 minutes. And after 20 minutes, it hasn't started yet. I'm, uh, so if we, we're going to... No, because that wasn't... I'm going to talk for 20 minutes and then Dan is going to stand up when there's five minutes to go and go, ah! or whatever he does, and then he's going to do it after, uh, with one minute to go, and then there's a chance to ask questions. So um, don't start the clock yet because we haven't actually started yet. So, so that was all by way of introduction. So um, anyway, the first thing we're going to talk about in terms of basics, uh, this doesn't work, okay. But the first thing we're going to talk about in terms of basics is making sense of the Bible. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning. Um, I'd like to read from the New Testament. Our reading is taken from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and starting to read at verse 10. 2 Ch Timothy chapter 3, starting to read at verse 10. And you'll recognize what's being said here. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. That's Paul's way of life. We're not sure that he wrote to Timothy, but it's written in his name. My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Lyconium and Lystra? The persecutions I enjoyed, uh, endured. <laughs> Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus uh, will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learnt it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is useful. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So, what does that mean and what is the Bible? Oasis Church Waterloo has developed a view of how to read the Bible over the years. It's not that we're seeking to abandon the Bible, but rather our thinking has been born out of a deep respect for the Bible. So, in that slide I have up there, how do we read the whole Bible, all scripture, authentically, honestly and consistently? It turns out that lots of people don't read the whole Bible authentically, honestly, and consistently. They read bits of the Bible and drop other bits of Bible. They drop bits that don't fit their frameworks, their theological, systematic theologies. They use proof text. People come along to you with this verse and that verse rather than the whole context of the whole thing. 
we have to deal with the whole Bible. If our theory of the Bible doesn't fit the whole Bible, then our theory of the Bible and how to read it is probably wrong. If it has to abandon certain texts and leave them behind, then it's wrong. And of course, churches and denominations do this kind of thing all over the world. So we're going to look at what the Bible is. Cut and paste. Lots of people, I've just been saying in another way, cut and paste uh, the Bible. I've um, talked about this subject before and some of you will understand something therefore of what I'm going to say, but I know others won't. It's um, an interesting thing. Uh, I have a friend and he tells me that in America... Uh, a Bible, a new Bible was produced by a kind of um, a, a kind of radical group and they advertised it on the internet and the Bible was called My Bible and it was leather bound and it was in a nice case and you could send off for My Bible and lots of people did send off for My Bible and they got sent My Bible it, it, the cover beautiful, do you know and you could have it, you could have it in any leather bound colour that you wanted but when you opened up the box it said my Bible, but when you opened up the Bible, it was completely blank. Nothing in it, page after page after page of emptiness. And then, as you look back in the box, really troubled by the fact that your new Bible had nothing in it, you saw in the bottom of the box, there was a tube of glue, some, a pair of scissors, and some instructions. And you got the instructions out, and the instructions simply said this, my Bible... Take your current Bible, cut out all your favourite verses and use the tube of glue to stick them into this one. You have my Bible. Of course, it was a really clever um, uh, uh, concept because that is a, in effect what so many people do all the time. We have our favourite verses, our favourite books, our favourite passages and our favourite theories which we arrive at by ignoring all the bits that we don't want to uh, use at all. So how do we make sense of the whole Bible, the every bit of it, even the stories that you wish weren't there, the verses that have plagued you all your life and have been used against you or used against others, the bits about God that you really don't like at all? Because if we don't deal with the whole Bible, effectively we've already dumped the thing in the bin so here's what I believe we need to know all views expressed are my own they're for you to debate and think about rather than swallow whole the problem with the Bible and our reading of the Bible is exactly this look at what it looks like I don't mean that it's old and tatty but I mean that it looks like a book, there it is the best book to read is the Bible. I got taught when I was a kid, there was a little song, the best book to read is the Bible and if you read it every day, it will help you work and rest and play or something like that. You know, I can't remember the tune now, but, uh, uh, but the best book to read was the Bible. The Bible is not a book. It just looks like a book, but it's not a book. And our whole problem is in thinking of it as a book. Our whole problem is in thinking of it as a book. Now the funny thing is this, think of someone famous and old in the, uh, the, um, in the history of the church that you, you know. Uh, somebody like, uh, let think, think of somebody like Anselm, have you heard of him? Or Augustine, have you heard of him? Or Be 
Benedict, have you heard of him? We talked about him already. Or Francis of Assisi, have you heard of him? You know? Any of those guys and lots of others, right? Think of any of them. What did their Bible look like? And what order did the books in, in their Bible come in? Here's the thing. The books in their Bibles came in any order they wanted them to come in. And their Bibles consisted of the scrolls that they could actually afford to buy. Because, of course, it wasn't until the printing press that the Bible could ever be a book. It was always a collection of scrolls. And you might have this book, but not that book. And you might agree with this book and not that book. Famously, in the 16th century, in the early 1500s, 1517, 18, 19, a very famous Christian called Martin Luther, founder of the Reformation, the beginner of the Reformation, said that he disagreed with the book of James. You're right, it was James. It was some others as well. But James is the one that we famously know he disagreed with. And he decided he didn't want it in his Bible. What a cracking, stupid thing that was. If I stood up, I mean, I know I say some outrageous things, but if I stood up and said, you know, guys, I've come to the conclusion that the book of Mark should be banned from the Bible because I just don't like it. How did Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation, get to say, I don't think James should be in the Bible? And no one go, how did he just do that? Because actually, even at the beginning of the 16th century, the Bible wasn't set. Because the printing press hadn't taken off by then. It had been invented, but it was very—it was the latest media of the day and not many people had it. So you had scrolls and you bought the ones you wanted. The Bible is not a book. It is a library. It's a library of books. And it's only since the printing press, and actually not even since then, it's since the printing press became cheap. Because first and foremost... Firstly, it was very hard. Only the rich had books. But when the printing press became cheap, when you could mass produce, that's when the books of the Bible finally got fixed. Now, there was huge agreement about which books or scrolls or writings should be considered in the sacred library. But it was only with the printing press that you got what's called the fixity of this whole thing both for the Catholics and the, uh, and, and the Protestants, the Orthodox as well. So the Bible is not a book. Instead, it's a library. Now, actually, it tells you that on the front cover. But it's a great example of how our visual understanding overrides anything else because it says Holy Bible. And those of you who read French and know French means that that means library. It means holy Bible. Holy means different. It simply means the different library. It's a library of books. And for those of you who don't read French, I just took this picture of the inside of a New Testament. It says, names and order of the books of the New Testament. Well, a book can't have books in. Only a library can have books in. The Bible is a library. Now, why does that matter? Because when you approach a book, if you buy a book from a book bookstore, from Waterstones or wherever, you bring it home and you expect it to have an author. And once you've decided that the author of the Bible is God, 
then you expect this author to be consistent with himself. You expect God to be consistent with God. And so you expect, because you've made the false assumption this is a book, and actually the false assumption that God was the author, that you've now decided that everything it says on every page should sequentially fit with everything that it said on every other page and all agree. It's like reading a book by J.K. Rowling and when you're in chapter 25, suddenly saying... That's not what it said in chapter 2. That disagrees with that. You then will go, this book is full of contradictions. However, once you abandon the thought that this is a book and you move back to the idea that it's a library, why do you go to a library? You go to a library simply because it's filled with different books and different opinions. If you were studying biology or archaeology or architecture or whatever it is that you're doing at the moment and you went all the way to a library only to discover that every book totally agreed with every other book and there were no opinions expressed and no insights expressed and no personality and no different views expressed, you would be devastated because you could just get one book, stay at home and, and do it that way. The whole reason we do research is to get more depth and breadth and insight into what we're saying. And that is what the Bible is. It's actually a library filled with books agreed on through centuries that had something to say into this conversation. So if you read the Bible or books or texts of the Bible, you'll find that sometimes they agree and they agree over a great deal and sometimes they disagree. They agree about God, but not always all about God because some books think that God is vengeful and other books say that he's not, etc., etc., etc. Even the thought that God is a he, of course, is an anthropological kind of, well, we can't think outside of our language, can we? So we, God is spirit, God is not a he, and God is not a her. God's personal pronoun is spirit. But it's hard to make that work in all conversation at all time, as I know, because I just completed reading writing a book, and um, a very long book comes out in June, by the way, and uh, it's really hard to do that thing all the way through. So back to this, our Bible reading. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, there's two things to know about that. First of all, of course, uh, technically it's referring to all the books of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, not the New Testament at all. The writer had no thought that this would, his words would eventually be part of what we call the Bible. Um, but look what it actually says about this, whether you apply them to books of sacred books of the, what we call the New Testament or Old, Old Testament. All scripture is God-breathed. What, it, what does God-breathed mean? The word is inspired, breathed out from God. Right? And is useful. It says it's useful. It's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. It's useful. It's not like every word of it. You see, this guy, whoever wrote this, it probably was a disciple of Paul in the next generation. They understand that 
They've read the Hebrew scriptures. They understand the disagreements. They understand that Isaiah had a different view of who should be able to live in Jerusalem than Nehemiah. They understood that the Levitical Code had a different view of sacrifice and life to the later prophets who said that sacrifice had no part, but what was necessary was mercy. The writer writer here knows that there are different views and different opinions expressed in different books and writings. He knows that there are clashes in thought. He knows that in one book of the Old Testament, it tells us that God inspired King David to do a certain thing. Won't spend time uh, thinking about that. And he knows that there's another book right next to it who says that King David was inspired by Satan to do that exact same thing. And he understands that one of those books was written in the south and it's political in Judah and the other one was written in the north and uh, Israel and was political. And he knows, he understands all that. There are different shades, different opinions, different thoughts different outlooks. Nehemiah thinks that Moabite women can have no place in God's plan. The book of Ruth suggests something very, very different. So how do we put all this together? Through a lens. And our lens is Jesus. And that is indeed what the New Testament itself says. Hebrews says, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed as heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. And John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, the prologue as it gets called, (coughs) says this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. This is Jesus. The word become flesh. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. Even the Bible, actually the Bible, tells you that the Bible isn't the word of God. The Bible teaches you that Jesus... Five minutes. The Bible, the Bible points out that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God become flesh. Jesus is the reflection of God. The Bible teaches this. The Bible contains words of God. It is inspired as people wrestle with God, who God is and their moral understanding slowly grows. People say, I believe the Bible. I believe what the Bible says. I often uh, don't say this to people because I think it's unkind to say it. But which part of the Bible are you talking about? I believe what the Bible says about marriage. Well, what kind of marriage are you talking about? Where is it talked about in the Bible? Because the, the Bible has several views of marriage that slowly develop. And none of them are what we call marriage, by the way. So marriage, as an example, develops. And there are several different phases of it. The Bible is developing because it's a library And it's inspired by God, I believe, in the sense that God is slowly pulling people through history. And he's pulling them out of their poor understandings into a deeper understanding and more depth. It's an ongoing process. So ultimately, Christianity is not about a book at all. It's about a person, and that person's the Word of God. If you've ever been to the Louvre, you would have seen that. You know, you've been and seen that, haven't you? Yeah? It's kind of small, isn't it? Yeah? If, if you're not being to see it, <laughs> forgive me, it's, as everyone goes to see it, 
um, you best go see it sometime, but you'll be disappointed. So um, <coughs> it's a wonderful technical painting, and I could actually, if I was doing a talk on a different thing and I wasn't racing for five minutes, I could tell you about why it was such a breakthrough artistically, but it's still small. And, um, and, uh, but here is, in my view, the greatest treasure the Louvre has. And if you go to the Louvre in Paris, the gallery in Paris, and you don't see this next time you're there, if you're ever there, if you ever have this privilege, you should go see it. It's only about a five-minute walk through um, the, uh, the, the Louvre to see this. Here it is. This is brain-stretching. Now, I, don't, I, notice, I know it doesn't look very brain-stretching there. It's called the Code of Hammurabi. Hammurabi was the first king of Babylon. He lived exactly 500 years before Moses. And this is a giant stone. It's called a steel. And it has, it's 500 years older than Moses. This is the real thing, you know? And it's a giant stone with laws written all over it. And you go... Blimey, they actually wrote laws on big stones. Two this minutes. one is about seven feet high. There it is. Uh, cuneiform uh, writing. There's enough. It's got, it's got 190 something laws on, but let's just look at one. It says this 500 years before Moses, if a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye. If one breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one destroys the eye of a freeman or breaks the bone of a freeman, he shall pay one manner of silver. If one destroys the eye of a man's slave and breaks the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of his price. And you think, my life! That doesn't half sound like Moses, but it was written 500 years before he was born and I'm standing in front of it. That's why I said you should go see this thing. Of course, Jesus quotes Moses when he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There's the different places that Moses said it. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. One minute. All that's happened is this. The moral consciousness of the human race is constantly growing. Hammurabi's code is a massive breakthrough. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But then... He says, but the eye of a slave or a freeman isn't worth as much as the eye of a full citizen. And so there's, there's this kind of graduation thing. But then comes along Moses and he says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And they all go, yeah, we have heard it said. Hammurabi said it and we're in Mesopotamia and Hammurabi was a big dude. But Moses just says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he stops there. He doesn't say... Uh, but in the case of a slave, it's less than that. And in the case of a free man, it's a bit more, but it's still less than that. It's equality. But it's, but it's still retribution. Thank you very much, Blake. It's, it's equality. I'm finished, actually. It's equality. It's equality, but it's still retribution. But here in Jesus, we discover not only has there been moral growth, but equality based on forgiveness, the principle of forgiveness and inclusion rather than retribution has dawned. We all read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Thank you. Well done.
So, now we're going to put some music on at the back, and as that's happening, um, I hope you've been thinking about some of the questions that you've got and how we kind of, how that, how we work all of that out. So you've got literally a minute to scribble them down, and we're going to come and get them, and then in three minutes we're going to start asking Steve some questions, okay? So, if you've got a question, get it down quickly. Just gonna, we're just going to crack on here. Um, Daniel and uh, uh, Dan have got, I'll sift in through some other questions, but I've just got three which are kind of the same, but let me just to get us started. All good libraries are constantly owning new books. Are we missing out, not including uh, the apocrypha books at, at, and beyond in our Bibles? And um, that's a good question. Uh, just thinking about the development from Hammurabi to Moses to Matthew, is that development complete, uh, complete or is it still in progress um, and then I'll, I'll talk about those two um, uh, to, be, uh, to begin with 
Um, in actual fact, first of all, the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha, if you go into a Catholic, uh, uh, if you read a Catholic Bible, all the Apocryphal books are in the middle, Maccabees, etc., Ezra, or, or, um, all of those, Ezra, they're great history books, you know, and so sometimes when I go to other churches, um, in fact, even high Anglican churches, I was asked to speak at um, St. Uh, Alban's um, Abbey Cathedral, um, uh, recently for a big festival and the reading was from Maccabees and so I talked about uh, 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 um, I talked about the Maccabean family and the extraordinary things that they did so there's a piece that used to be in um, Protestant Bibles in fact um, Martin Luther included that in but has slowly dropped out so the, even when we say, I believe the Bible, you have to say, is that the Catholic Bible or is it the Protestant Bible? And um, is it the Orthodox Bible, which is the longest? In fact, the Protestant Bible has 66 books. The Catholic Bible has 73 books. The longest Bible in the uh, world is the Ethiano Ethiopian Orthodox Church, which has got 83 books in it. And that's because all that happened through the centuries is people collected books together that meant something and were sacred to these people. Is this ongoing? Well, the compilers of the canon understood that different books of the library spoke with different voices and expressed different views. They did. The only alternative is that they were all daft and they never bothered to read the books that they put into the Bible and afterwards got a shock and they said, oh, Nehemiah doesn't agree with Isaiah and Jesus uh, doesn't agree uh, with what's said in 1 Kings, etc., etc. But that does mean there's an ongoing conversation. As such, the Bible contains sometimes harmonious, sometimes discordant, sometimes even contrary human voices which present a conversation taking place in the scriptures. There's a conversation going on. Nehemiah says, no non-Jew can be part of Jerusalem. Isaiah says, no, Jerusalem is for all peoples. Jesus, in the New Testament, chooses to quote Isaiah when he's in the temple. He chooses to disregard what Nehemiah said. My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, he reminds them, quoting from Isaiah. So it's a conversation. By its very nature, then, Dialogue, rather than monologue, is what the Bible calls us to, to be a humble and honest discussion, a debate in community. The way I always say it is, a good sermon, you would have said, heard me say this before, isn't something you all go away and say, well, what a great illustration and we agreed with everything. A great sermon is one that you can't wait to get talking about over coffee or in a car or at home and say, well, I like that, but I don't agree with this, I think this and I think that. It's supposed to be a debate. Um, by its very nature, oh, I think we just talked about that. By its very nature, dialogue, oh, we talked about that as well. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, right. Okay. Hang on. That's it. The process of biblical interpretation, therefore, is ongoing, open-ended. It's a global project of all those who take the Bible seriously. It is our project. Yeah? Is it, was it closed? Is that development now complete? Or is it still in progress? No, it's still in progress. And we've all got a responsibility the Holy Spirit guides us in our understanding of Scripture. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us um, through the process of ongoing, open and honest discussion. Our understanding of the Bible will evolve and develop over time. Has yours? 
Yeah? Do you believe exactly what you believed five years ago? Are you hoping to grow at all in the next five years? So we're wrong when we're dogmatic. Whenever we say something, this is it, this is final, it's, all it means is we're rather short-sighted. It doesn't mean it's final. Even the things we say are final are simply part of the process, the ongoing evolution of growing. We will not always agree. But here's the key. When we disagree over our understanding of the Bible, we must continue to extend grace and patience to one another instead of look like that. <laughs> it's our love in this conversation. Why? Because we're included in the family of God's people, not because of how right we are, but because graciously and mercifully accepts us, sometimes in spite of our positions. So don't judge other people for having a different view to you. And it's the other thing, it's easy, oh, when I was young, I used to think that too, but now I'm enlightened. Well, that's not very enlightened. A much more enlightened view is to say, I'm on a journey too, and I'm growing. But this holy, these holy texts call us to continue the discussion. Do I honour uh, John Calvin? Yeah. Do I agree with a word of what he ever said? Few. Do you know? Do I honour Martin Luther? Yeah. Do I absolutely agree with what he taught? I think he made some great breakthroughs and some giant mistakes. Do I agree with everything I ever say? No. I think I make some great breakthroughs and some giant mistakes. And I think you're foolish to sit there and think I'm the minister at the front and I must know. Together we must find truth. It matters that much that we press on with this always. Right. Um, the Bible has been used to justify some horrific events through history, such as wars and slavery. Why do you think Christians got it so wrong? Because we tend to see things the way we are rather than the, things, the way things are, if you see. I tend to look at things the way I am, to read things the way I am, than to read things the way they were. I've just written this book I was referring to about Paul, and it's based around that basic concept that we've radically misunderstood Paul, who I love, but I understand loads of you even here will think he was misogynistic and sexist and hateful and disciplinarian. I think he's been read entirely wrong. I think that we've not read his words so much as, you know, a ventriloquist gets a dummy and the ventriloquist actually does the talking and has the dummy there. I say in my book, I think that's what we've done to Paul. We just yank verses out and we think he's talking to us, but it's actually us that's forming the thoughts. And I think that's why Christians get it wrong. So, you know, you can come up with a PhD on apartheid. People who say, I've got a PhD in theology, so did all the people that wrote the apartheid theology. It, you can, it, we can easily do that. But before looking down on all those people in the Old Testament who believed that God was going to tell them to slaughter all the Amalekites and not leave one of their women and children alive, or looking down on the people of the Middle Ages who burned Christians or other people of other denominations or religions, or looking down on those who haven't seen the light of giving people liber liberty and inclusion around their sexuality and gender. Remember this, in our day, we still send bishops to bless battleships. We still go to war in the name of our gods. We still announce this is a just war. 
we've all got a long way to go still. Which is why we have to keep having the debate. Is there time for another question? Because I haven't got any. So I think, so I think a lot of the questions fall into three different categories, maybe two of which we've talked about already. One is to do with, um, you talked about the kind of moral consciousness evolving through scripture, but then like scripture comes to an end mm -hmm. and what happens like we're 2,000 years later, so how do we bridge that gap in terms of how the world has changed or our understanding's changed and we think, see things differently? So that was one question. Well, uh, well shall I answer that just briefly, because I said a little bit about that, that, but clearly the Bible doesn't have the last word on slavery. Clearly doesn't, does it? You know, treat your slaves well is the best thing that it says. Well, if you've got a slave living next door, you don't knock on your neighbour and say, make sure you're treating them well. You report them to the police this afternoon. Do you know? So the Bible isn't the last word on slavery. And it's not the last word on racial integration, actually, although it has some great thoughts in Paul about um, how that might happen. And it's certainly not the last word on marriage. And it's certainly not because we've evolved marriage um, constantly. And it's not the last word around sexuality and same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage. And it has little to say about transgender issues and et cetera. And it has little to say about photocopiers and their use, you know, in office life. Or mobile phones and screen time. Do, do you see what I mean? The view that we can stop with the New Testament and go, well, if it's in the New Testament, I'll do it. It has little to say about stocks and shares and living in a free market economy. But we have to work out, through grappling with these texts, what it is to live in a free market economy. What it is to create justice in a city that has thousands of people sleeping on its streets. What it is to create great education or great employment in a 21st century globalised economy. It has little to say about Europe, one way or the other. Our job is always to take these principles and wrestle with what they mean, which is what, why sometimes we will disagree. And how will we find truth? In community through one another. Brilliant. Oh, <laughs> okay. okay. Thank you. That's great. Ta. <laughs> well done. Sorry.